So Genesis chapter 34, there should be a Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, there's some Bibles on the back table. Feel free to grab one of those on your way out. Love for you to have that. Genesis chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field, and as soon as they heard of it, uh, and, the, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my, of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman woman, to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to our to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves. And we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone." Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives and all that was in the houses. They captured and they plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? 
Well, there's an ethical conundrum uh, that's called uh, the trolley problem. An ethical conundrum is kind of a situation where there's not necessarily one answer, right answer, that it's kind of ambiguous what the course of action should be. And in the trolley problem, uh, say, imagine that you're going along and you see this train is being derailed and it's going full speed ahead. And down the train track, you see that there's five people who are tied up across the train track. And these people are going to be killed. The only thing that you can do to stop the train is that you can pull down a lever. But if you pull down the lever, the train will be diverted to another part of the track. But you see on that other part of the track that there's one person down working on the track. And if you pull down the lever, you'll kill that one person. So the question that's asked, and this has been replicated in many different contexts and many different situations, they ask, what would you do? Would you just allow the train to keep going or would you pull down the lever and stop it? Well, most people, about 90% of the people, say they would pull down the lever. But then it gets a little bit more interesting. They would change the parameters of it and they said, well, imagine that that one person on the other track was a relative, a parent, or a sibling, or a child. Much less people would choose to pull down the lever if it was somebody that they knew. I shared this illustration with somebody this week, and uh, he said to me, I don't like that illustration. I said, well, why don't you like the illustration? He said, well, it, it would never happen in real life, and there's no right answer. There's no right course of action. You kind of feel bad either way you choose. I mean, I can't imagine being in that situation if it was in real life and either pulling down the ladder, la- lever or letting the train go, someone's going to die and you're probably going to feel pretty bad about it either way. You really can't win. And I think about that idea, that ethical conundrum, and then I read this story, the story of uh, Dinah and Jacob and his brothers, and it seems like there's no right answer. We see that different course that these two characters take, Jacob's, Jacob and Jacob's sons, They take two opposite courses, and no matter which way we look, it kind of feels uneasy. We kind of feel guilty about the way that they choose. So what is this problem that they're dealing with, and how do they respond to this problem differently? So we're in the Jacob episode. Last week we looked at how Jacob wrestled with God, and God kind of strengthened him and encouraged him for his meeting with Esau. And then in chapter 33, Jacob meets with Esau and finds favor with Esau and makes peace with him. And so we're going to skip over that today. And then he settles in the city of Shechem and he buys for himself a piece of land. Now don't don't confuse that because it's the land, a city of Shechem, but there's also a character named Shechem that we'll see in a second. So we're reintroduced to Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And Dinah was Jacob's daughter through Leah, who was uh, the wife who he got by, by uh, trickery. And he was, she wasn't his favorite wife. Rachel was his favorite wife. And so Dinah is Leah's daughter. And Dinah, it says, went out to see the women of the land. We don't know exactly what that meant it could have been had kind of negative connotations, but it could have been she was just kind of hanging out with the, the ladies of the, of the land. 
But while she's out, Shechem, the prince's son, sees her, and he seizes her and takes her, and it says in the text that he humiliated her, which probably indicates that he raped her. And so that's the problem. And then after that, he comes to his father and he says, get me this girl to be my wife. I mean, he's this petulant son. It says that later in the text, it says that he was the most honored in his father's household. And he makes this demand of his father, get me this girl for my wife. There's no please, there's no apology. He just says, get me this girl. Saying this girl or this maid was probably a derogatory way of referring to Dinah. And then Shechem and his father Hamor, in case you forget, they're the kind of weird names. Remember, Shechem is the son. Shechem and Hamor go and they talk to Jacob. And they, again, there's no apology, there's no repentance, there's no remorse. They just say, Well, my son, he loves Dinah. Will you give Dinah to be his wife? Will you intermarry with us? Can we become one people. So that's the problem. Dinah has been defiled. There's been this injustice that has occurred. There's no repentance. There's no remorse. And now they want to become one people with Jacob. Now, if you were a father and you had a daughter who was in this situation, who had been taken advantage of, what would your response be to that? I don't have any children, but if I had a daughter, if I imagine if I had a daughter, my first response would be to go downstairs and get the shotgun out if this happened, even though I don't have a shotgun. But that would be kind of the fatherly response that you would want to protect your daughter. You would be angry that your daughter was defiled, but that's not Jacob's response as recorded in the Scripture. It says in the text, now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, and the New American Standard translated like like this, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. The ESV says that he kept his peace. He kept silent. He didn't say anything. It's an interesting response for a father who finds out about such an injustice for him to just keep quiet, not say anything, not explode in anger that his daughter has been defiled and taken advantage of. It might have partially been because it was Leah's daughter that he didn't care about her as much. We don't know for sure, but it's kind of heartbreaking as we see this story where her father doesn't stand up for her. And we see that her brothers kind of take the place of her father. That while the Shechem and Hamor talk, start talking to Jacob, it's Jacob's sons who answer for him. He doesn't answer for them. He doesn't defend Dinah's cause. He doesn't stand up for him. As we looked at last week, we looked at kind of the character of Jacob. We looked at how Jacob was a deceiver, a usurper. He was kind of a mama's boy. Said that he was a quiet man. He dwelt in tents. He didn't like confrontation. When confrontation came, he fled from confrontation. We see that throughout his life. But then when he meets with God and wrestles with God, we think that it's going to be different, but now he's back to his old tricks again. He's being passive, not refusing to confront an injustice, refusing to stand up for something that is right. We see later that this is because of 
fear that he has. Fear that those around him would attack him. And so he thinks to himself, I better not ruffle any feathers. I better not do anything too harsh or too rash. Because if I do, they're going to attack me. And I don't have a lot of people. And so they're going to take and destroy me. So he fears retribution. And so he's passive because he fears that retribution. What will they do if I respond to this injustice? And so he does nothing. The brother's response is very, very different. It says in the text that when they heard about it, they were indignant and very angry. They were so angry that this foreigner had defiled their sister. It's an understandable response. And they take up her cause. They defend her honor. But the way that they do it is quite extreme. It says in the text that the brothers responded deceitfully. And they said to Shechem and Hamor, well, I'll tell you what, we'll make a deal with you. If you are circumcised, then we will intermarry with you and you can have Dinah to be your wife. It was a deceitful thing to do because they weren't ever intending to do this. Maybe they thought that they would never go through with this request. If they say, if you don't do this, we will come and we will take Dinah by force. Now, it appears that Shechem still had Dinah in his possession, that Dinah was still in Shechem's house, as we see at the end, uh, when they come and rescue her. And so they say, well, if you don't do this, we're going to come and we're going to take Dinah by force. And it seems that these, uh, these two people, Shechem and Hamor, are kind of speaking from a point of view of leverage. They have Dinah. And so they're trying to manipulate Jacob and his sons into giving them what they want. But Jacob's sons aren't going to go along with this. Remarkably, Shechem and Hamor agree to the request to be circumcised. Shechem has grown so infatuated with Dinah that he'll do anything to have her. And they go to the men of the land and they say, these people, they're favorable towards us. And if we... uh, are circumcised, then we can intermarry with them and all their possessions, all of their stuff can be ours. Note that they don't say anything about Dinah or the defilement. They just talk about all the stuff that's going to be theirs if they do this. And so they go along with it. And then after three days after they're circumcised, while they're still recovering from that, when they're not suspecting anything, just like Shechem took and seized Dinah, Simeon and Levi take up a sword and go through and massacre all the males in the city. And they take all of their stuff, all of their livestock, all their possessions. They take all their wives, their children, completely plunder and destroy the city. And they did this all through a deception. Is it any wonder that the Children of Jacob, the deceiver, would also deceive. And so they wreak vengeance upon the people of Shechem, upon Shechem and Hamor and the whole city. See, what they desired was retribution. While Jacob had a fear of retribution, these uh, brothers, Simeon and Levi, had a demand for retribution. They wanted someone to pay. They wanted justice to be meted out. And they were so bloodthirsty that they went and destroyed the whole city because of the sin of one man. 
The two approaches to this problem, this defilement, are summed up and encapsulated in the last part of the text. Listen to what it says in verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed. I, both I and my household. It's fear of retribution. You shouldn't have ruffled any feathers. You shouldn't have done anything. You shouldn't have ticked these people off because now they're going to come and take us out because we only have a few of us. It's fear of retribution. And then the brother's response, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? It's a demand for retribution. This should not be done, and we have to right this injustice. We need to take vengeance into our own hands. And as we look at this passage, we ask ourselves, who is the hero? Who is the person that we should emulate in the story? And unfortunately, we don't really have a hero. Just like that illustration that I gave at the beginning, you know, you feel bad either way. You look at both of these choices and you kind of feel bad about either one. Neither one is completely right. You know, you might choose one or the other, but still, you, there's an uneasiness that something is wrong. I mean, Jacob shows amazing restraint, but he's too fearful to stand up for his daughter, to stand up for what's right, to right an injustice. And Dinah's brothers stand up for her. They defend her. They rescue her. But in the process, they destroy a whole city of people who didn't do anything wrong, per se. So there's no heroes in the story. One had a fear of retribution. One had a demand for retribution. Yet the good news is as we look in Scripture, and specifically in the Old Testament, we see uh, different pictures of characters. Uh, Author Brian Chappelle calls us a fallen condition focus. As we look at characters in the Old Testament, we see where they fall short, and we see how the gospel meets the need where they fell short. And we see in this story, too, that the gospel frees us from these two competing desires. The gospel frees us from the fear of retribution, and it also frees us from the demand for retribution. The gospel frees us from the fear of retribution and the demand for retribution. And when I'm talking about the gospel, I'm talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and all the effects that that has on history and on our lives. So it removes our fear of retribution first. We see Jacob is completely driven by fear, by his desire for self-preservation. Notice what happens at the end of the story we just read. Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, why did you bring trouble on me? Now notice what he doesn't ask them. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Simeon, Levi, you took this too far. What you did is wrong. Simeon and Levi, what you did is not honoring to God and it's not honoring to me. He doesn't say any of those things. He doesn't address the morality or immorality of the situation at all. He's not concerned about that. He's only concerned about saving his own skin. He's only concerned about the other people attacking him, not about doing what is right. 
He feared what man could do to him more than honoring God. That fear, fear of retribution or the fear of man, can really hold us back as believers in Jesus. It can hold us back from sharing our faith with other people. Well, what if, what if they look down upon me because of my faith? What, what if that relationship is strained because they know that I'm a Christian? And so we stay silent. Don't say a word because we're afraid of what might happen. Now maybe we're in a friendship with another believer in Jesus and we see that that person is making choices that are destroying them. That they're living a sinful lifestyle and rather than say anything, we just kind of gloss it over because we say, well, I, I don't. what if he gets angry? What if she gets angry if I say something? And rather than lovingly show somebody that their way that they're going is leading to destruction. We just we stay silent. Or maybe we're in a wor- our workplace and boss is telling us to do something that's a little bit underhanded, or maybe a little bit dishonest, maybe the little bit that stretches the truth, and rather than stand up for what's right and do what's right, we just kind of go along and say, well, I don't want to lose my job. I don't want them to think less of me because I'm a believer. I don't want them to think that I'm a goody two-shoes. Or maybe we see some injustice that's occurring in the world. And rather than do something about it, we just stay the same. We don't want our lives to be disrupted. We don't want our stuff to be disrupted. So we just keep doing what we do because we fear what other people will think. The gospel frees us from our fear of retribution. It frees us from being governed by other people's desires and other people's whims. It frees us because in the gospel we see that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. That in all things God works for our good. We see in the gospel that God sent His only Son to the earth to die on the cross for us, rising again. And Paul tells us in Romans If He did that for us, if God is for us, then who can be against us? That's what we just sung about just a few minutes ago. The Gospel frees us from that fear. There's nothing that man can do to us that ultimately will harm us. Psalm 118 verse 5 said this, Out of my distress distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. If God is on our side, then nothing can be against us. Dr. Henry Cloud in his book, Never Go Back, uh, tells about a hypothetical situation. And he says, next time you have a situation where you kind of feel like you're being pressured to go along with the crowd, to please people rather than to fear God. He says, imagine yourself in a situation with talking with God. So God says, so why didn't you take the opportunity I offered you? You say, I really wanted to, and I knew it was your will for my life, but you know know how upset so-and-so would have gotten if I did it. It would have been awful. God says, you're right. 
So-and-so would have gone through the roof and would have been upset with you. And I have a meeting with him or her later. In exactly three years, two months, six days, seven hours, and 33 minutes, at that time I'll be talking to so-and-so about his or her tendency to get mad at people when they do not please him or her. I will take care of that issue. But that's so-and-so's life, not yours. You're responsible for your own choices. You're responsible for your own decisions. And so-and-so is responsible for how or he responded to you. That will be his or her problem. But the fact that you chose to give in to him or her is your problem. And now I want you to show you the life that you gave up by living the life that other people wanted. Watch that screen over there. And then you see what could have been if only you had not tried to live your life to please others instead of to please God. The gospel frees us to serve God wholeheartedly. It frees us from the fear of man. Frees us from the fear of retribution, but it also frees us from the demand for retribution. So we go throughout our lives, we will face situations in our life where we will be mistreated. Maybe people will speak ill of us. Maybe even we'll be physically harmed. Maybe we'll be a victim of a crime. Maybe we'll have people who deceive us or who lie to us right to our face. We'll face the reality of evil in our life because we are all sinners. We live in a sinful world. But when we face injustice, specifically in our lives or the lives of our loved ones, when we face those situations, everything in our bones will want to cry out for vengeance. Like Simeon and Levi, we will want justice. We will want blood to be shed. Yet Christ calls us to forgive and even to love those who harmed us. Luke 6, 27-28 says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Forgive your enemies. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Now how do, how do we get there? I mean, it's... Not an easy thing to forgive people who have harmed us that are really guilty. So how do we get there and forgive people who have harmed us so badly? And I think Jesus gives us a helpful parable to understand how we get there in Matthew chapter 18. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay all the debt. 
So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's a story about a man who owed a great debt, a thousand talents. It's an enormous amount of money. He could have never paid it back. And yet the master forgives him. And then he goes out and someone who owes him a very small amount, a hundred denarii, he says, I want justice for that person. You're not getting away with it until you pay back every last penny. In the same way, Christ has forgiven us. God has forgiven us of a great debt. We all deserve to be separated from Him, a place the Bible calls hell. We've all lived life of, lives of selfishness. We've all looked to other things to satisfy us rather than God, and the just penalty of that is being separated from God forever. But God loved us so much that He sent His Son, Jesus, to pay the ultimate penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could experience forever with Him. And if God has done that for us, should we not also forgive other people? He's forgiven us a great debt. And because of that great debt that He's forgiven us of, it removes from us the demand for retribution. The fear of retribution and the demand for retribution. These are two things that really get believers caught up. That really trip up believers. These are things that Satan really wants to entrap us in. The fear of retribution. He wants, Satan wants you to stay where you're at. You better not do anything for God because if you do, there's going to be a cost. You better just play it safe. You better just live your life and just keep on going. And all the while, we are completely ineffective and useless for God's kingdom. Other people he entraps in bitterness and unforgiveness, the demand for retribution. And because of something that's been done to us, we keep reliving that over and over again. And I, we say, I, I can't believe that person did that to, uh, to me. I can't believe this person did this to my loved one. That person, he's got to pay. He's, she, she's got to pay for what she did. And so we live in the past and we keep going over and over and over again. And Satan is looking at us and he's like, that person is ineffective. That person is right where I want them to be. And we're useless for God's kingdom. But the gospel frees us. The gospel gives us the opportunity to serve God wholeheartedly. It frees us from the fear of retribution because we know in the gospel nothing can hurt us. If God is for us, who can be against us? That we have a home in heaven and nobody can take that away. That no matter what happens to us on this planet, we have that to look forward to. And he takes away from us the demand for retribution because we see in the gospel the ultimate act of sacrifice. That Jesus paid the ultimate price for our forgiveness. And if he did that for us, then should we not also extend grace and forgiveness to those who harm us? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the gospel. That while we were yet sinners, you died for us and paid the penalty for our sins. Enacting our freedom to live for you, to live in joy, to live in peace. To live lives that are free from these things that would trap us. From the fear of retribution, the demand for retribution. God, I pray for those of us here who are struggling with either one of these things. 
God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply the gospel to our hearts, that we would realize that these things don't have to control us, that we don't need to be governed by other people's expectations or by unforgiveness, that you freed us and you freed us to serve you, to make a difference in this world and to love others like you've loved us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.